I would invite you to open to the end of Exodus 15 and the beginning of Exodus 16. If you were here last week, you know that we were in Exodus 15 last week, and we did not uh, take up the last section of the chapter, beginning at verse 22. So we'll begin there this morning. But as we turn our thoughts to the scriptures, I want to suggest how we're meant to understand this particular passage and uh, some other passages as well. So maybe, like me, you've pondered James chapter 1 and wondered what James was talking about at the end of the chapter when he speaks of the one who looks at his face in a mirror and then he goes away and he forgets what he was like. And, and James is speaking, he's urging people to be doers of the word. And the one who is not a doer of the word but a hearer only is the one who looks at his face in the mirror and then he goes away and he forgets what he's like. I want to suggest to you this morning that James could very well be thinking of passages like the ones that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at the end of Exodus 15 and then the whole of Exodus 16. And there are, there are two episodes here, but the two are part of a set of three. And the third one is at the beginning of chapter 17, but when I mentioned this reality to Matt, he said, you're not going to try to do the whole thing, are you? And I, so, no, I'm not going to try to go through the beginning of chapter 17. But I do want to note that the, the problem at the end of Exodus 15 is they don't have water. And then the problem in Exodus 16 is they don't have food. And then again at the beginning of Exodus 17, they don't have water. And the way that, that this passage, I think, is like a mirror for us is what's happened to Israel is they have been liberated from slavery in Egypt and they are now on their way to Mount Sinai and then from Mount Sinai they will make their way to the land of promise. And in the New Testament it is not uncommon, in fact I would say it's frequent for New Testament authors to speak of the fulfillment of the exodus from Egypt as the cross of Christ where our redemption is accomplished and then for, for the New Testament authors to, to present Israel's trek through the wilderness as a kind of analogy to our experience of being liberated from slavery to sin and then making our way to the fulfillment of the land of promise, which is the new heavens and new earth in the new Jerusalem. And so it's almost as though we are where Israel finds itself. We who have been saved, we who believe in Christ, we are where Israel finds itself. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want to encourage you to think in terms of these, these episodes, these two episodes, but then the ones that we're going to see going forward as a mirror for your life. And I want to encourage you to see yourself in the text. And it's not pretty. It needs to change. And there are things about us, aren't there, that aren't pretty. Things that need to change. And the ways that we can be enabled to change are also here in the text for us. So let's look together at Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 and following. And as I, as I turn to this text, let me just say one more thing here. You know, the beginning of James chapter 1, he, he speaks of how... Uh, in all circumstances, 
whatever situation you find yourself in, you should count it pure joy. And then he goes on to say, if anyone lacks wisdom, and I think he means if you lack the wisdom to count your circumstances joy, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Okay, so put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites, Exodus 15, 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. Okay, so they've They've just come through the Red Sea. The waters have closed on the Egyptians. They saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The hosts of Pharaoh defeated by the Lord. They sang his praises. They celebrated him in Exodus 15. But here in verse 22, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Three days is about as long as human beings can go without water. And the, the implication of this text is, you know, they don't have Nalgene water bottles that they're carrying around. They don't have camelbacks that they're, that they're uh, hauling along with them. They are out of water. And, and they are at a point where they are likely near death. Verse 22, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Mara. So you can imagine the, the letdown, the hopes rise, they see what looks like water perhaps on the horizon, and, and they go plunging toward it, and then they get to it, and it's bitter. They can't drink it. It will not quench their thirst. How would we do in that situation? We've, we've seen the Lord's redemption. We sang his praise. But then we get to the place where we've had all we can take. And, and our bodies are exhausted and our, our thirst is unbearable and we're perhaps near death. How would you respond in that situation? This is the kind of thing I think that James means for us to count joy. Not the fact that, you know, maybe the chef overcooked your steak. First world problem, right? Not the fact that your, your luxury automobile eats up gas too quickly and you grumble because you're having to spend too much money on the gas. No, we're talking about a near-death experience here. Verse 24, here's the mirror staring us in the face. The people grumbled. The people grumbled. There's, there are going to be a couple of words that tie together these three episodes, these episodes about water, bread, and water. One of these words is grumbled. Another word is test. We're going to see these words in all three of these episodes. The people are going to grumble, and then in the first two episodes, uh, the Lord is going to test the people. In the third episode, the people test the Lord. And this is exactly what Paul says we should not do in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, let us not put him to the test. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And then it gets worse. Moses, verse, it's going to get worse after this episode. Verse 25, Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Uh, if you look into the commentaries, you'll see that there are... Um, 
there are, there, there are speculations that perhaps the problem with this water is that it's too salty. And then they'll, they'll start talking about how coals made from acacia trees could be used to, to be put into uh, salty water and, and it would thereby, somehow the, the property of the coals would make, make it so that the water could be drunk. And, and so people will speculate about and they'll, they'll wonder whether this is a miraculous thing or whether when it says there in verse 25, the Lord showed him a log, the Lord is perhaps teaching Moses how to unembitter this water and make it so that the people can drink it. Whatever the case, they're in a desperate situation, and the Lord has brought the resolution to the situation. The Lord has enabled them to drink the water. And then it's as though the lesson is applied here in the middle of verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying... Verse 26, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. Now, I just want to pause here and note that other places in, in the Pentateuch, Moses is going to make it clear that the only way you're going to do those things Diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Do that which is right in, your, uh, in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. The only way anyone ever does that is if their hearts are circumcised. If their hearts have been fundamentally changed by the Lord so that within them arises this desire to diligently listen. I want to hear from God, somebody who's been born again feels. And then... Do what is right. I want to please God. I, I've, I've come to understand that these other ways that may look attractive in certain ways, may be appealing in, in certain aspects, they're actually paths that lead to death. And I don't want to die. I want to live. And I know that the way to life is the path that the Lord has laid out before me. So I want God and I want life and I want joy in his presence. So I need him. This is how someone who's born again responds. People who are dead in their trespasses and sins, they hear this and their response is like commandments, statutes, laws, God. Have you seen what's on offer over there? I don't want God. I want sin. Well, the Lord offers here in verse 26, if you will do these things, if you'll listen to his voice and do what's right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, look at this promise in verse 26, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. And I just want to pause there and, and observe that when you go and compare the curses of the covenants, the, cur the curses of the covenant in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy uh, 28, uh, those curses of the covenant look a lot like the plagues on Egypt at various points. And listen to what Amos says in Amos chapter 4, verse 10. He says, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. Amos is essentially saying, the Lord brought upon you the curses of the covenant, which can be likened to the plagues on Egypt, and it didn't bring you to repentance. 
Now look at the last words of Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, where the Lord says, For I am Yahweh, your healer. I am the Lord, your healer. It's like he's saying, I know you want to run into that cesspool. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to heal your desires so that you desire to be clean, so that you desire to be with me like you should. It's like he's saying, I know you have a taste for death, and I'm going to heal your appetite so that what you want is life. And there's a pattern here where first the Lord provides the water that they need, and then the Lord says, verse 26, listen to my voice, give ear to my commandments, and do what's right in my eyes, and keep all my statutes. You see the, the pattern there of first provision, and then comes the, the, the stipulation, you might call it, but really it's the way of life. He's, he's providing the water that enables them to live, and then he's saying, this is how you're now to go forward living. And this is really what we've seen in the Exodus in general, because what he's done is he's first as, as, as is said elsewhere in, in the Bible, broken the bars of their slavery and made them walk erect as though he healed them. He broke off the bonds of Egypt and then even though they were, they were stooped and, and, and accustomed to being slaves, he made them stand upright. He healed them of that slave mentality. And then he says to them, now here are the commandments. Here are the statutes. This is the way. Walk in it. That's the pattern. First, salvation. And then the way of life is set out. And we're going to see that pattern again in chapter 16. But before we go forward, let me just make one more comment about chapter 15. And that is, the, I just want to make an observation about the way that in the Song of the Sea, there was this celebration of the exodus from Egypt and then uh, a look forward to... Uh, Really, the celebration of the Exodus is in verses 5 through 10. The look forward to the conquest of Canaan is in verses 13 through, 7, 13 through 16. And then in verse 17 says, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And I, I, I commented last week that that sanctuary, it's almost as though it's like the, the mountain of Eden. And it anticipates Mount Sinai, but also Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And it's as though the Lord has, has delivered them from slavery, and he's going to bring them through the wilderness to the new Eden in Exodus 15, 17. And something similar, a, a similar kind of pattern and dynamic is at work in Exodus chapter 16. But before we go there, look at 15, 27. Then they came to Elim uh, this past spring. I... Uh, was invited by a man named Peter Lightheart to uh, come down to Birmingham, Alabama uh, to speak at the Theopolis Institute that he runs. And he calls his home wh where he lives, Beit Elim. Uh, he, he's named it after this passage. They came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So the, the 12 springs of water and the 70 palm trees 
uh, 12 and 70. These are symbolic numbers in the Old Testament that speak to fullness and completion. So it's as though the Lord brings them through this situation of difficulty. And then it's like he brings them to almost like an anticipation of the new heaven and new earth. Almost like a, a little piece of Eden in the fallen world where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there. Now in chapter 16, they're going to set out again. And I, as, as we start into Exodus chapter 16, I, I, just a kind of a wide-angle observation, it, it's remarkable how Exodus 16 is going to parallel Numbers 11. Same kinds of things are going to happen over in Numbers 11. And I think this is part of the superstructure or the architecture of the whole of the Pentateuch. And it seems to me that the whole thing, the whole of the Pentateuch, centers on Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, when uh, the high priest makes atonement for his own sin and the sin of his family, and then he makes atonement for the, the tabernacle itself and the camp and all the people. And once atonement is made, the people can commune with God. That's what's at the center of the whole Pentateuch. And then there are these corresponding episodes like... Uh, Exodus 16 and Numbers 11 as you work your way out from the center of the whole book. So Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. I think they're probably counting from... Exodus chapter 12, where in verses 2 and 3, the Lord tells Moses, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. So I think that's the first month, the month, when the, the month of the Passover. And then in verse 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb. So on the 10th day of the first month, uh, they're going to offer the sacrificial lamb. And now uh, in, the, in, the, in the second month, on the 15th day, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So they, they grumbled when they get to Marah and there's no water. And the Lord addresses the, the problem and he sweetens the waters. And you might think, you know, we were groaning in slavery and the Lord heard us and he delivered us. From slavery. And then we got to the waters of the Red Sea, and here came the army of Pharaoh. And we began to cry out. We began to ask if the Lord had brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. And he split the seas. And we passed through on dry ground. And then we, we didn't have water. And he sweetened the waters. Well, the fact that we have no food, this is going to be great. We don't know what he's going to do, but you know, you'd think that they would learn from what has gone before. And I suspect, you know, Moses doesn't tell us about it, but I suspect that those who had circumcised hearts had begun to learn. I suspect that there were some in the congregation, I'm, look, I'm just totally speculating, but I suspect there were some in the congregation who had learned, who were hoping, who were looking, as it were, to the eastern sky and, and, and expecting God to come through. But we're told here in 16.2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. 
And then look at verse 3. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt. Do you see what they're saying there? It's as though they're saying, we wish the Passover hadn't happened. And we wish it hadn't just been the firstborn, but all of us. It would be better to die by the hand of the Lord than to be out here in the desert having to trust him. That's their attitude. And that's a terrible attitude. I wonder if you see yourself in the mirror. I hope not. But if so, it's time to be honest with yourself. Verse 3, the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt. And then look at what they say. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Um, excuse me. You mean when you were slaves? <laughs> you, mean, you, mean, you mean when you were groaning out for salvation to the Lord? Meat pots and bread to the full, please. They are not accurately remembering their own history. And we, we see ourselves in this mirror too, don't we? We look back on our lives and we, sometimes we can be tempted to redesire the sins that we've been freed from. We've been delivered. The bonds have been broken. And sometimes we look back and we're like, well, that was nice back then. When I used to have all those things that were killing me, when I used to indulge in all those things that were corrupting and polluting and, and perverting my mind and, my, and defiling my flesh, that was nice back then. Was, no, it wasn't. It was slavery. It was slavery to sin. It wasn't nice. It was slavery to Egypt. So they are not accurately remembering their history. And then, and then look at what verse 3 goes on to say. They say to Moses and Aaron, for you, and they're, they're addressing both Moses and Aaron here, you have brought us out into this wilderness. Now, the Lord's going to address this down in verse 6. The, the Lord is going to say, at evening, or, or Moses and Aaron are going to say, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so you can see here that they're attributing this to Moses and Aaron. They're saying, you brought us out, and you brought us out here to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they don't remember their history in Egypt well. They also don't remember who accomplished the exodus, and they don't remember the purpose of the exodus. Remember what the Lord commissioned Moses to go and say to Pharaoh? Let my people go that they may serve me. They haven't been brought out into the wilderness to be killed. So just to summarize where we see the people here, we see in verse 2, they're complaining, they're grumbling. And, and I think we can say with Complete confidence. These complaints are unfounded, aren't they? The, the, there is no basis for these complaints. And these complaints are unbelieving. They are not complaining from hearts of faith. And they're seeking death rather than life. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord. They don't understand the exodus, the redemption that's been accomplished in their lives. They don't trust Moses. 
they don't know Yahweh. They don't know him. If they knew him, they would be saying, hey, remember what we were singing after we came through the waters of the sea? Let's sing that song again. Let's sing that song by faith in what he's going to do. That's how they would respond if they knew him. If they knew him, they would do what James says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. If they knew him, that's what they would do. When we look in the mirror, when we look in the mirror, do we see somebody that knows him? Do we see somebody that is a doer of the word? Somebody who acts like he or she knows Yahweh. That's what we want. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Look at how merciful, how kind, how patient, how generous, how able the Lord is. And, and he's, he's not even reproving them at this point. There's no, do you remember what I did to Egypt? Do you remember what I did to the Red Sea? Do you remember the waters of Marah? Do you know who I am? There's none of that. It's just, look what I'm going to do next. I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. And then he introduces another test, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. The, the word here is Torah, whether they will walk in my instruction, my Torah or not. So here again, it's going to be provision. And then we shouldn't think in terms of a commandment or, or some kind of a negative prohibition. We should think in terms of a way to life. That's the way we want to think about this. The, the instruction of the Lord is like a, 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 a signpost on the way into his presence. That's what he's giving the people. And the particular signpost here is the Sabbath. He's going to, this is going to come up over and over again in this chapter. Verse 5. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Okay, so that's the instruction. The Torah here is... You're going to gather every day a portion that you're going to need. And then on the sixth day, you're going to gather twice as much. And it's not explicitly stated here, but it will be on the seventh day, you're to rest. Now, this is not imposing some kind of straitjacket on them so that they're unable to do what they really need to do. That's not what the Sabbath is about. The Sabbath, it's like coming out of slavery in Egypt to the mountain of God, to the holy abode. It's like the creation week... And then once God has built his cosmic temple, the king of creation takes up residence in this palace that he's constructed for himself and the delight of all his people. That's what the Sabbath is about. It's about you, you, you do your work, almost like you're, you're modeling yourself on the Lord, and then you rest in his presence and you enjoy him. That's what the, that's what the Lord is giving to Israel here. Verse 6, so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they, you know, they, they, don't, they don't remember what happened at the Exodus. They say, Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. And Moses said, listen, you're going to know. You're going to see evidence. You're going to perceive that it wasn't me that brought you out here to kill you. It was Yahweh who brought you out here that you might serve him. And in the morning, verse 7, you shall see 
And interestingly, this is the very first instance of this phrase in the entirety of the Bible. In the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? It's like Moses is saying, your grumbling against me is misplaced. This is not my fault. I'm not the one that did this. When you grumble, you grumble against the Lord. I, I think it's things like this. This word grumble occurs, we saw it in the previous uh, chapter at the end of chapter 15. It occurs six times in chapter 16. It's going to occur again in chapter 17. Eight times in this compressed space we're going to read about this grumbling. And I think Paul has passages like this in mind when he says in Philippians 2.14, do everything without grumbling or complaining. That's how we're to live. Do, it's, it's like he's saying, look at the Israelites, see yourself in the mirror, recognize the, the inclination to grumble, and go away and don't forget what you look like. Go away and be a doer of the word. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. That's who the Lord wants us to be. And if we know him, that's how we'll want to be. Because we'll know, if I grumble, I'm really criticizing the Lord. I'm suggesting that he didn't know what he was doing or that he got it wrong. And we never want to say that. Verse 8, Moses says, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full. Notice the way this matches what they said about their time in Egypt. They said, we sat by those meat pots, and we ate bread to the full. And now Moses is saying, the Lord is going to give you meat, and he's going to give you bread to the full. When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. You know, what we need to silence the grumbling in our hearts is to experience the glory of God. And in our lives today, to experience the glory of God is simply to experience God's revelation of himself. And there are two kinds of revelation that the Lord offers to us. One is natural revelation and nat out there in creation. And natural revelation needs to be interpreted through special revelation. So we want to see the glory of God on display in creation. And we want to see the glory of God on display in the word. And if, if we see him, if we experience him, if we know him, grumbling will go away. Verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. 
you see the most important thing for them to know? The most important thing for them to know is who he is and that he is. They need to know him. That's what they need. And he's, he's providing for them so that they will know him. Verse 13, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. Now here too, you know, scholars have looked at uh, the provision and they've suggested kind of naturalistic explanations. But even the naturalistic explanations, which if those are right, fine. Even if the naturalistic explanation is right, it still has to be under the sovereign control of the living God for it to happen just when Israel needs it. So there are these migratory patterns of quail in this part of the world and at certain points these quail will be uh, blown by the winds and and once they sort of settle from their long flights they're exhausted and they're easy for anybody that that happens to be on the spot to catch them and then it's it, it's remarkable that there's some insect in the ancient near east or uh, sorry in the in this part of the world there's an insect that uh, secretes uh, a certain kind of enzyme that will actually be like dew on the ground, and then the sun will melt it, or ants will get it if it's left there too long. And I'm, I, I read that the people of this part of the world, they actually collect this stuff, and they eat it, and they call it manna. I'm not, in, I'm, I'm not inclined to think that that secretion of the insect is the same thing that we're reading about. Because what we're, what we're reading about happens for exactly 40 years while Israel is out there in the wilderness, and then it stops. And when the people see it, they don't respond, oh, this is what we saw those people that we passed out here in the wilderness eating. They respond, what is this? You know, it's like they're seeing something altogether new that is beyond their experience. So I don't think the naturalistic explanations are correct. I think God is doing miraculous provisions. But even if, either way, it's, it's still... Uh, God working on their behalf, whichever way you come down on that. So verse 13, in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? You know what I thought of when, when I was meditating on this verse? I thought of Paul saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. God provides for Israel something that is beyond their experience, beyond their expectation, better than anything they could have come up with. I mean, can you imagine them trying to haul around with them provisions for a 40-year trek through the wilderness. No no way they could do that. And the Lord provides for them this bread from heaven. They did not know what it was. Verse 15 goes on to say, Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. You see that again? Provision of bread followed by Commandment. Salvation from slavery in Egypt, deliverance, followed by Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments. 
provision of the water at Elim, followed by, listen, obey, provision of the bread. This is what the Lord has commanded, verse 16. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. This is a perfectly regulated provision. And, and what's being communicated is they are not, they're not to hoard it. They're to trust that it's going to be there tomorrow morning. The, the Lord gives them exactly what they need. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Whoever, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. So he gives them just what they need for the day. I think it, it's, it's in, in light of something like this that the Lord Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, give us our daily bread. Give us what we need for the day. We don't need to hoard. We don't need to worry. Verse 19, Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Now before I go on and, and, and read the next statement, let me, let me just observe that, you know, if, if, you, if you know God and you, you see what he's like, he, he's the kind of God, it seems, that keeps putting his people into these impossible situations so that he can spring them in some new, unexpected, unlooked for, unimaginable way. So he, he sends them down into Egypt because of a famine. They get good and enslaved. And then he brings the plagues and visits the Exodus and gets them out. And then it's like he sets them up to get entrapped at the Red Sea so that he can split the waters. And then, again... Three days pass, nothing to drink. Who, whose plan do you think this was? And, and then there's no food. And, and here he is. So to know God is to want to obey. Because you know him. And you love him. And you believe him. When he says, I know that way looks attractive. It's actually going to lead to your death if you go that way. You say, well, that, yeah, that way looks attractive. But I know you. And I believe what you say. I can trust you. And so you follow him. To know God is to want to obey. This is why John is going to say in 1 John, his commandments are not burdensome. And now Exodus 16, verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they, they hoarded it. And they didn't trust it's going to be there tomorrow. And it's ruined. You, you take these, what I'm about to say, and you test it and you see if it's so. The only way to really enjoy life is to walk with God. And, and you look at your history and you test it against your ongoing experience. Can you get to a place of, of joy and gratitude and soul-deep contentment apart from walking with God? The Bible is everywhere telling you, no, you can't. No, you won't. The only way to really enjoy your life, every aspect of it, is to walk with God. And to walk with Him means to be on His path. Verse 21, morning by morning they gathered it, 
each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Now, verse 22, this brings us back around to the Sabbath. On the sixth day, they gathered twice, twice as much bread, two omers each. And it, it's almost as though they're surprised by this, as though they, they went out and, and they're trying to gather their normal amount and they wind up with twice their normal amount. So the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them in verse 23, this is what the Lord has commanded. commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And I think he means, you know, today. And all that is left over, lay aside to be kept till the morning. Okay, so prepare it today, lay it aside for tomorrow. And then verse 24, so they laid it aside till morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. You try to go against the Lord's commandments and, and you may... You may get everything that you've wanted to have in your hands, and it'll stink and have worms in it. You walk in the Lord's commandments, and it's almost like you, you, you find yourself with the same things in your hands, but it doesn't stink, and there aren't worms in it. Verse 20, they keep it, hoarding it, till the next morning it bred worms and stank. Verse 24, they keep it in accordance with God's commandments. It didn't stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Now, just like they kept some, the seventh day is going to roll around in verses 27 through 30, and they're going to go looking for some. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The, the point of this rest on the seventh day, again, is not for them to be uh, given a burden, given some constricting, life-sucking requirement from God. That is not the point. The point is, on this day... You can relish God's goodness to you. Now, if you say to me, are we supposed to keep the Sabbath today? I'm going to argue that, uh, among other things in the New Testament, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, when the author of Hebrews says in verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest, I think what he's saying is, when we trust in Christ, we experienced the fulfill, fulfillment of the Sabbath, so that the Sabbath is fulfilled by faith in Christ, we, we've rested from our, our works, our attempts to justify ourselves before God. And in Christ, we enter the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. So that, with Paul's statements in Romans 14 and Colossians 3, leads me to say, um, I don't think there's a seventh-day day requirement that has somehow you know, migrated to the first day of the week. Uh, I don't think that's what's required of us. Uh, I do think we should gather for worship on the first day of the week because it's the day on which Christ was raised from the dead, but I don't think that Sabbath observance is binding on the Christian. It's, it's a matter of Christian freedom, as Paul speaks of, of it uh, in Romans 14. He says, let each one be convinced in his own mind. So, you know, if you're convinced of it, that's fine. Uh, be convinced in your own mind and, and rest on the first day of the week. That's, that's fine. Um, but if you're, not, if, if you're convinced in your own mind that every day is alike, 
be convinced in your own mind. Uh, Verses 31 through the end of the chapter, it's like the Lord says, okay, I know that you, you failed to remember correctly what your life was like in Egypt, and I want you to remember correctly not only the exodus from Egypt, so I gave you the Passover, but also my provision for you here in the wilderness. So now these instructions, verse 31. The house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses says, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. At this point, you know, the Ark of the Covenant has not yet been built, but eventually uh, the Ark of the Covenant is going to be referred to as the Ark of the Testimony, and the jar with the, with the manna in it is going to be placed in the Ark. Verse 35, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan, an omer, is the tenth part of an ephah. So, rightly remembering what God has done, celebrating the Passover, knowing that that manna is in the jar, rightly remembering what God has done. In our case, you know, we're not Israelites. We're not part of this ancient Near Eastern nation that was in a covenant with God. In our case, we rightly remember what God has done for us in Christ on the cross every Sunday as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Rightly remembering what God has done puts nostalgic longing for slavery to sin in right perspective. And it enables us to put off and put on. We feel that a little bit of an itch. Oh, that was nice back there when I used to indulge in those. No, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that no mental space. I'm going to expel that from my mind. And I'm going to replace that with an accurate memory of the way that I was in bondage and the way that I was killing myself with sin. God is bringing Israel in these these episodes. He's bringing Israel to his presence at Mount Sinai. He's liberated them from slavery. They've come through the waters of the Red Sea. They're going to meet God at Mount Sinai. And it's as though he's bringing these people from death, Egypt, Egypt, symbolizing this lower region, almost being like the realm of the dead. They're brought out of that unclean realm of the dead to life, life in the presence of God. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. I think David is talking about the instructions, the commandments. If you're here this morning and you're fighting against sin, God is bringing you from death to life. God is making known to you the path to life by giving you these instructions. If you're here this morning and you recognize, when I look at Israel, a people that doesn't know God, that doesn't understand redemption, that's who I am. I want to know God. If, that, if that's what's rising up in your heart, I would encourage you to talk to somebody next to you or come find me or one of the elders, but probably the person next to you will be prepared to say, you know, if, if you want to be saved, really, 
the Bible says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you call on him, you, 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 you confess him as your creator. Lord, I know that you made the world and you made me. And you acknowledge and, and confess and repent of the sin that you've committed against him. Lord, I know that I've transgressed against your holiness and I've offended you. And then you confess that Christ died in your place. Lord, I, don't, I wouldn't have sent, sent Christ to save me, but you did. Thank you for sending him. If I was Christ, I wouldn't have come for a scoundrel like me, but he did. Lord, I give you praise and thanks for providing salvation in Jesus. I want to trust you. I want to walk with you for all the days of my life. God will save you. He is, he is willing and able to save. And nobody that comes to him does he turn away. Let's pray together. Father, as we think of the way that you, bringing, you, br you brought Israel out of Egypt and you're taking them to your holy mountain, Lord, we pray that you would help us to set our hearts fully on the grace that will be revealed when Christ, who is our life, appears. And Lord, we pray that you would, through these passages, teach us wisdom. The wisdom that considers trials of many kinds. Joy. The wisdom that, that enters our hearts and enables us to find the knowledge of you, Lord. Would you act in this way? Would you make people that are mean and unhappy and frustrated, would you make them into celebrants of your grace? People that are ready to, to rejoice in you with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Lord, I pray that you would continue your work in all of us. Conform us to the image of Christ. Make us doers of the word, we pray. In his name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together.